Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host PJ Weary and I'm here today with Dr. Pia Kampajani and she is the Associate Professor of Moral Philosophy at the Department of Philosophy and Communication Studies of the University of Bologna. Where, um, and so we're talking today about her book, Theories of Emotion. Uh, Dr. Kampajani, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really happy and honored to be here. So tell us a little bit why this book? Well, it all started with very pragmatical reasons, as it is often the case in my life. Uh, I had just got my job in Bologna. It was the first permanent position I had, and I was assigned new teaching, of course. Um, so I wanted to teach philosophy of emotion to my students. It's a subject that it's been booming uh, over the last decades, but not so much in Italy. Of course, there are people who do it in Italy as well, but there were, to my knowledge, at least there were no teaching with this name and there were no handbooks uh, that would introduce students to the discipline, if you can call it a discipline, but that's something we can talk about later on. Yes. Um, so I decided to build my teaching and it was also, it was the first, uh, the lockdown, the first lockdown had just started. So I really had plenty of time um, and I started writing down my notes to prepare my classes and well, it ended up in, in the book, more or less as it is now actually. I tried it on my students and then I decided it, were, it had worked well enough. So uh, I edited it a little bit and then it was published in Italian first and uh, in, in English afterwards. That's the edition I assume you have in your hands. Yes, yeah, that's um, and I have the electronic copy, so I'm not able to show it. But um, I really uh, I enjoy the the cover, and uh, I'm really excited um, to talk about this today. Wow, isn't it? Yes. Um, so it's and I, I love from, the. Uh, no, I love uh, saying it. The picture that's the favorite part of the book. My favorite part of the book is the picture on the cover. Uh, I chose it from one of my favorite movies, the Four Hundred Blows by Truffaut. Yes. I knew it was yeah, familiar. I, 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 I like. I've seen this. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, uh, I love how you structured it. And I, I you know, as you're talking about it coming from a class, it kind of makes sense. With you have, um, uh, it, did you have debates with your students? So you have the you have your different uh, theories of emotion that you talk about, and then you have uh, the debates following each theory. And so it's divided into these three. Uh, sets of theories and three debates. Is that kind of the structure of the class? Is that why you did it that way? Uh, well, not really. I, I thought it would be useful for the class uh, as well, but uh, it was a matter of principle. So I wanted to use the theoretical part uh, in order to test real problems. So I wanted to make it visible for the students that 
this stuff we talk about, even if sometimes it can sound very abstract. I mean, it does never sound very abstract if you talk of emotions, of course, but the language might sound so sometimes. And so I wanted them to see that taking different positions or different approaches on the theoretical side might determine very different ways of looking at solutions in more practical problems or in experiences that we all have and we can talk about more easily. So that's, that's why I decided to put the theories into test in specific fields. Yes. And I think that takes us to a really interesting, one, one of the things I love about it is you start off by mentioning that this is a philosophical introduction to a very interdisciplinary field. What is the value? Why does this need to be interdisciplinary? Well, I think more or less anything, if you want to understand any kind of problem, the more perspectives you take on it, the better you're going to understand it. Uh, especially if it's about the way human beings or non-human animals as well function and live and have subjective experiences. Um, so we are at a point where, I mean, we could sit down in a chair and think really hard and end up with a <laughs> very good that, that looks beautiful, uh, but we want it to be able to explain Hmm. Uh, what happens in a way that it is that is understandable by everybody, and we want it to be able to allow us to to make predictions that make sense. And so we can't disregard, for example, what you know, we know from the so-called hard sciences, biology in this case, for example, plays a dominant role, uh, and we have to try to design our own explanation in a way that takes into account all that we know in different in different fields as well so so that was the the, the idea and i think it's a good idea not only when when you work on emotion but but more or less on anything you might want to work on i i mean i agree 100% uh if you look you know this is a big questions podcast and really i come from a philosophy background but as I looked at, you know, for me, this is kind of the pursuit of truth without ever catching it. That's the idea of chasing Leviathan. Um, and uh, <laughs> like, I didn't want to just make it a philosophy podcast because exactly what you're talking about. Like, if you're going to find real answers and real explanations, you're going to have to diverge into other fields. So, I mean, this is near and dear to my heart. Um, so, uh, as, go ahead. Sorry, now I was just thinking that if you think of it, um, historically, disciplines have diverged and specialized relatively recently. So if you take philosophy and psychology, they were the same thing up to the 19th century. And the same you can say of natural, what, what was called natural philosophy and later on became science. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's nothing new, right? Right, right. It's a return in some ways, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I would agree. Um, I mean, it's interesting even to see like the beginning of terms like, um, like science, right? In like you, you see it growing out of, um, of course, this is Heidegger's analysis, but growing out of Aristotle. Um, so, uh, uh, like philosophy has birthed a lot of these, and so, um, in some ways, uh, there there is a unity. You know, <laughs> uh, that's actually a question I have here for you, but the there's a unity. Uh, to how everything works together. And so you, we can't study all of it at once, but so we have to break it down, but you have to 
uh, at times like cross these boundaries in order to understand something? Well, you mentioned Aristotle and he had, sorry, I interrupt you all the time, but no, I'm no, Italian and I took her. <laughs> oh, you know, that, this is how my family, yeah, my family's New England. We interrupt each other all the time. This is great. I'm used to it. So. <laughs> okay. No, I was thinking because you mentioned Aristotle, he has something very interesting to say on this point on emotion in his um, treatise, treatise on psychology. The uh, It's called On the Soul in English, The Anima. Uh, he talks about the way emotions are defined by the dialectic philosopher and the natural philosopher. And he says, for example, with anger, the dialectic philosopher says that anger is a desire for revenge, whereas the natural philosopher describes anger, defines anger in terms of the kind of physiological arousal it brings about. So boiling up the heart around, uh, sorry, of the blood around the heart. And then he says, well, these two definitions are not enough taken in isolation. You have to, to bring them together. And it's not enough to add one to the other. You really have to integrate them. Um, and he was right. So, so, and that's what scientists and scholars in philosophy of emotion and emotion theory more in general are trying to do these days, I think. Yes. And there's that kind of, um, I've had several philosophers on to talk about uh, the the nature of explanations in science. And it becomes very clear that um, you need multiple types of explanations uh, to create a more cohesive picture, a more um, comprehensive picture, right? Like if, if someone, <laughs> if, if I'm walking with my wife, I think this is the example that I, we use in that other podcast. If I'm walking with my wife and a tree, um, Start, twirls down, you know, or not a tree, I'm sorry, a leaf twirls down from a tree in the wind, right? And um, she, uh, I have an opportunity to say something poetic there, you know, something romantic. Or, you know, if I'm like, well, if you look at the wind and you look at like all the structure of the veins of the leaves, it's like, I, that's a missed opportunity, right? That's not the point of that explanation, <laughs> you know? And so um, the realizing that every explanation has a purpose uh i think just to, just to kind of uh hopefully complement what you're uh what you're saying from aristotle and also to um uh to make sure i'm on the same track with you does that make um, am i following what what you're saying with aristotle would you say yeah i think so um yeah i think so so if you want the idea is that if you want to really To reach a proper understanding of what emotions are about, um, then you need to structure your inquiry at different levels. And mm. then you need to find a way to put everything together. Yes. Uh, yes. The extent it is possible. So you have to find a way to build up a unitary um, explanation that takes into account the different discoveries you've made at the different levels of inquiry. Yes. That, that also means taking into account all kinds of material. So for example, the historical humanities can be very important as ways to gather data. The same way, so to say, the psychologists uh, uh, collect data using self-reports, for example, the scholars in historical humanities can do the same job looking into literature, art, and 
and they can, you know, they can find a lot of information about the way people of different cultures or in different time uh, talked about the way they experienced emotions. And that, that's, you know, those are data we should take into account. Yes. I mean, even in here, um, uh, just as an example, the value of that historical research is that you have distance in both location and time, right? Because if you just take like a psychologist just does a study from people all in the same culture, their emotions are formed by that culture. And so by doing that historical research, you get access to emotions, uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, you're, you're researching from the dead, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. I mean, of course, you can do cross-cultural research now as well. Yeah. So synchronically, so okay. Uh, but that's a very interesting thing to do because one of the main issues I think that are still open, one of the main challenges that are still open in emotion theory um, is that, well, we still have to find a way that, uh, to accommodate variability, cultural variability, social variability, linguistic variability within a natural framework. Uh, yes. So typically the main theories that are available uh, either deal with nature, the nature side of, of the emotional experience, or they try to reduce nature to a minimum. Um, everybody's trying to get past beyond this this polarization but it, it's not as easy as you would think and so so that's a real challenge and i think that's where historical humanities and cross-cultural studies can help us a lot yes yeah um so many directions that want, uh makes me want to go but uh for our, our listeners uh, i you know <laughs> we're about we're about 15 minutes in um i'm not expecting a complete definition because i think that is very unfair in an hour, <laughs> but uh, what's a good starting point uh, to talk about emotions? Like when we talk about emotions, what's a good starting definition that you give so that at least to start our, in our inquiry, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, that's a problem in itself and it's the <laughs> problem I deal with in the introduction. So do we really need so how specific a definition do we need? Do we, need, do we really expect there to be uh, one definition? Uh, so that seems to be the assumption uh, very often, uh, but I disagree with that assumption. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea, or at least I don't think it's a good idea to start with an assumption like that of an essentialist kind. So the idea that we can find what really makes an emotion the thing that it is in a platonic sense, right? So that we can get at the essence of the definition. Um, yeah, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we should do that. And um, well, of course, this is an object of debate in, in, in contemporary theory. They have, scholars have made distinctions that are really useful. There is one very famous psychologist who's been working on emotion a lot, James Russell, and he has made a distinction between um, the scientific project, uh, a scientific study of emotion, a, a prescriptive study and a descriptive study. And as, as for the descriptive side of the project, he has um, claimed, he has argued that we should adopt a prototype theory of definitions. So, so we should 
look at best examples, but, but also be aware that there are not so good examples that are borderline cases. Uh, and I think is on the right track. So the concept of emotion, at least in, in folk psychology, is nothing that you can define by identifying a set of necessary and sufficient properties. You might want to do that in a lab, if you are, I don't know, a neuroscientist and you need to do something specific. But if you're interested in the way people talk about their own affective experiences, then I think you have to give up a classical approach to definitions, so the essentialist approach to definitions. Yeah, and that that's very fair. Like, um, even as I was just kind of meditating on this myself, um, the variety of what I call emotions, um, it feels like it's a, a big umbrella and part of the work is breaking down uh, and trying to figure out like all the different things that are happening. Like, like it seems like there's just a wealth of data even within myself when I sit and, and think about things like, uh, you know, there's uh, anger when something gets spilled, right? And there's, uh, and which is just like this, this quick flash and I'm, I'm over it in like a second, right? I'm just like, oh, that's annoying, right? And then there's, uh, and then there's like the, these deep and abiding choices. Like, you know, you talk, uh, I think you mentioned something about how values and emotions are connected. Um, that like, this kind of, this, this feeling that lasts and just kind of at, at a base level for a long time, you know, and that's so different. Uh, and it, it's weird that it's covered by the same word. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I don't think it's weird it's covered by the same word. It's just, that's just the way it is with many different things. Mm. So the prototype, the best example of an emotion often goes, I, which is my way to answer your previous question, yeah. what kind of definition? working definition we might start with. So the prototype of an emotion is an episodic experience. So it's not, it doesn't extend over days. It's normally something that we perceive as episodic. It uh, goes with um, feelings. So it feels like something, right? Um, it is elicited by some salient stimulus. Can be external stimulus in the environment or some idea or imagining that you have uh, that you appraise in a certain way. So you 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 do. I don't like saying that emotions are evaluations or entail the expression or the formulation of a value judgment, uh, but they. Uh, uh, I, I could say that they are ways of experiencing values without meaning that values are already there, uh, as if they were objective properties, but uh, uh, in the emotional experience, some kind of value comes up uh, for the emoter. So the prototype is like this, but it does by no means all instances of what we call emotions are like that. So you've, you've made the example of anger. Uh, when you're prototypically angry, you feel, I don't know, blood coming up to your face, uh, heart racing, your body posture becomes aggressive, and um, you have a desire to remove an obstacle so or to take a revenge. 
but then it might all also happen that uh, you are in a hurry after this podcast and you meet a friend, but you really have to be home very soon. And so your friend would like to stop and talk to you, but you say, I'm afraid, I, I, I fear uh, I can't stop right now. Well, that doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're experiencing all the symptoms of the prototypical emotion, right? It's just, right, but right. you still use that word. And, uh, we have to account for that. Mm. So that's not the best example, but it is an example. It's a, a way ordinary speaking speakers of English talk. And if you, we have a descriptive project, so if we want to, to, to explain or to understand how English speakers in their daily life talk about emotion and what they think emotions are, then we have to take into account both the prototype and the borderline case, the, the less good example. An interesting thing about what you just said is how um, when you, uh, how do you evaluate, and I, I don't know that you can, uh, what are your thoughts about um, people saying they have an emotion because they know they're supposed to, but they don't? So for instance, um, I'm going to use the example I run to on a daily basis. I have a bunch of kids rounding around the house. I homeschool and uh, I tell them they need to say sorry. <laughs> and they say sorry and very clearly do not feel sorry, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, um, you know, they're supposed to feel uh, remorse and <laughs> and they are communicating that they're feeling remorse. And yet, um, and maybe, so maybe some of this is the... But I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, on these kind of mixed signals that maybe <laughs> imply <laughs> false false emotion, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, well, you ask them, you tell them that they should say sorry or that they should be sorry. Well, I tell them that they need they should say sorry with the implication that they should feel remorse for hitting their brother in the head with a truck or you know whatever <laughs> whatever they have right, done. Right. right. Okay. Hmm. Well, you're just trying to teach them some social rules, I guess. And uh, in general, moral behavior, so to say, um, is or there are ways which I think are the right ways to to explain it in terms of affective dispositions. So again, that's what Aristotle would would do, right? So he would uh, his idea of virtues and vices were dispositions towards the emotions so virtues are the correct ways to experience emotions to have the right emotion in the right context and to the right extent to the right degree of intensity so we would be training emotions uh well yeah practicing actions in such a way that they embody a certain way of feeling about things i think that's where more or less what he meant in modernized terms. And so that's what I think you're trying to, to teach your kids. The appropriate way of feeling about what you've just done is regret or, or guilt, but I mean, guilt. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, guilt's a uh, psychologically laden term. Yeah, 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 but. It's not so. very pleasant to teach guilt to anybody. <laughs> no. so, but yeah, regret, yeah. you shouldn't, yeah. you know. Um, so you're teaching them how to look, what you think is the correct effective way to look at the situation. So what are the yep. salient features of the situations and the, of the situation and the way they should emote about them. So that's a mm -hmm. way of 
building up moral characters via emotions. Um, so before we, we go too far, I, I want to make sure uh, we get a little bit into uh, the book. Kind of that first section, the emotions of others. Can you talk a little bit? You, you base the, um, the first debate is about the emotions of others, and you connect that kind of with this first section on uh, biology or culture and the work of Charles Darwin. Can you talk to me a little bit about how Charles Darwin's work connects to the emotions of others? Yeah, that's right. So I divided the book into three main parts, expression, feeling, and action. And these happen to correspond to the, um, to, to the main dimensions of the emotional experience. So a prototypical emotion would be expressed somehow, like it has bodily manifestations, so to say. It doesn't, these bodily manifestations don't need to have a communicative fun function, but they usually do. So, but your face changes expression, right? Your body posture changes and so on. Uh, feeling is about the way you feel, the, 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 what it feels like of the situation, of the experience. And action is what you do. So the way you might decide to act. Um, and my main point in the book is that you, these are not dimensions of the emotion. So they're not components of a thing that is the emotion, but they are different ways to look at emotion itself. So emotion is all these things. And the three guys with whom I start each section, so Darwin uh, for expression, William James, for feeling and John Dewey for action, I think that interpreted in a charitable way, they were trying just to say that. So emotions are units of experience. They are ways of experiencing the world uh, that uh, express themselves in all these different ways. So they have a feeling, they go with that, they are action tendencies or they prioritize some course of action over another and they go with bodily manifestation. Um, so the first section is about that, is about expression, both in the sense of what it shows and uh, in the way what it shows on the body is also a way of the body to get ready to act in a certain way. Uh, so think, for example, of... Um, activation of the autonomous nervous system and you might have involuntary changes right? that, that show and at the same time they are meant or at least that was Darwin uh, Darwin explanation they are meant to prepare your, the organism to act in a certain way to flee or to attack for example uh, and so in that framework I then go on to explain, to, to, to review the main contemporary theories about uh, facial expressions. So there's uh, basic emotion theory. Um, and then I explain the opposite theories. They're, 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 they're the critics and so constructionism, those who bring a lot of attention on variability rather than universality. And in the end, I thought it was a good way to, to tackle the same problem, universality versus variability, that of looking into the way we, into the explanations that are very different from each other we have uh, for how we are so good at understanding how another person feels. And of course that at least 
prima facie, it starts by looking at somebody else's face. So expressions and manifestations of, of emotion are very important. You don't need to be looking at them, really. You can hear, listen to a story about them. That It's more than enough. But uh, it's about uh, how emotions manifest uh, and are expressed. So that's why I decided to, to discuss that debate in social cognition at that stage of the book. Um, I, I don't know um, if you're, are you familiar with, uh, with Wittgenstein's work? Uh, he has, a, a, so he has a series of lectures on emotion um, and he actually talks quite a bit about faces. So I don't know if you, you've read those, those lectures. They're really, yeah, um, sure. yeah. yeah. but he supports uh, the idea. Oh, sorry. No, I was, I was going to say, um, even as you're talking though, uh, I love the way that you're talking about defining uh, emotions as like these disparate parts that we describe as one process, but if there's not like an emotion thing, right? They're like, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, so I'm just making sure I'm on the same track. Wittgenstein talks very similarly about thinking, right? One of the problems with thinking is people look for like kind of these essentialist definitions where it's like, where's the thinking thing? You know, like where's the, you know, kind of this platonic ideal. And, um, and he starts talking about how literally what we're doing is like, if I'm writing, that's thinking, right? Like uh, the thinking is as much while it's happening in my head, it's also happening in my hand and on the paper and with my, my hand moving the pen, right? And it's the, it's the entirety of the process that we are describing and using as part of, uh, we are using for our, our like language toolbox, as he would say. Is that similar to how you think about emotions? Am I on the right track there? That it's this that we're describing multiple things going together as a, a value, like that's a valuable thing for us to incorporate into a single process. Yeah, I think so. And uh, it's also a good idea to look at emotions or as to thinking and at any other cognitive process uh, as a distributed event. So it doesn't happen somewhere. I, like we normally say that emotions are inside us or that we are inside an emotion. Uh, yes. So that's conceptual for a theory. I discussed that a little bit in the introduction. Uh, but those are exactly, so they're precisely metaphors. That's not what really happens, right? So there's nothing inside us and only inside us. And looking at expression uh, and behavior and action uh, and feeling at the same time, is meant to bring out the idea that emotions are all over the place. So they're not, you, you can't localize them somewhere. They are um, modes of behavior at the same time as uh, uh, subjective experiences uh, and ways of, of finding value in what's going on. So, so yeah, Wittgenstein is very relevant. Um, and he's relevant as well for as you mentioned, uh, uh, for matters of definition, because obviously the, the idea of family resemblance is yes. Wittgenstein's idea, right? So in the philosophical investigations, it discusses the concept of game as an example, and that yeah. really works well to explain what a prototype is and how categories, well, not so much what the prototype is, but how categories can should be interpreted in a flexible way as capable of including new members. Uh, that what is really important is that there is some relevant 
similarity between any two of these members to allow them to be part of the category. Yes, uh, that whole concept of family resemblance for definition really helped solve numerous philo like philosophical problems that I had in my head. So, uh, and I think this is a great example of that, that we use emotion to cover a variety of processes and it's useful for us to talk about them all together. But I mean, we can talk about our body reacting in an angry way and yet our consciousness is clear, right? Like, it, you know, you can have all these, uh, uh, the feeling might be even different from the the physical reaction, right? Like, so for instance, um, uh, there are certain uh, physical stimuli that will uh, be like anger, right? Like, um, and so, whereas you don't have the feeling of anger. Um, uh, an example would be uh, when people go to lift, um, they have other people slap them so that their body reacts with the fight or flight response, but they're not angry at the other person. <laughs> like they, they want to be, so it's so that they can, they can lift the weights better. Um, which I, I was like, you know, I, I think I would just do 10 pounds less. I don't need someone to smack me, but I, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's very helpful for me. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, you're providing just great categories to think about this kind of like this, this bodily manifestation, the somatic, uh, this feeling, this action. Um, as we, we move kind of in that second, uh, that second section, we talk about emotions and values, uh, sense and your debate is about sense and sensibility and decision-making. Um, I think this is, uh, so important. Like when I think about like, uh, it, it touches on all areas of life because decision making touches on all areas of life, and it's very clear that human beings are not <laughs> are not fully reason based in their decision making. So, can you talk to us a little bit about what that debate looks like, and um, and I think you tie that to William James. And so, can you tell us how those things connect? Right. Yeah. Sure. So that's the section on the subjective experience, which is why I started with William James who was interpreted to say that uh, emotion consists in the uh, perception of bodily feelings. So um, if you only read his main, his most famous paper on, on emotion, which is what is an emotion, which was published in 1884, um, that might be the idea you get, that he's saying, you know, he writes it in capital letters. He seems to be putting a lot of emphasis on that definition. Emotion is the perception of bodily changes. Um, and by doing that, he seems to be reducing what an emotion is to one of its dimension, that is the way it feels, to experience certain bodily changes, which is normally, he introduces it at the opposite way as the one that is widespread in common sense. So in common sense, we think something happens, we, we perceive it, uh, we express an opinion, uh, a value-based opinion about it, we have an emotion and then we have physical symptoms that come, that are a result of the emotion itself, right? So we normally talk of, of physical symptoms in terms uh, of consequences, what the emotion does to us, uh, what the emotion 
So James says, well, no, that order of the sequence is wrong. It's, uh, it goes the other way. You first have the bodily changes and then you perceive them. And the moment you perceive them, you experience the emotion. Uh, so it's, if you go through everything he wrote, which is not a walk in the park, because he wrote really a lot of stuff <laughs> and yes, changing his mind so often, even so I discovered that he was so uh, much, um, I don't know if you can say that in English, but who, I don't know the words to say somebody who changes his mind very often, but he was insecure in some way, right? He couldn't make up his <laughs> mind. And the point that he changed the name of one of his own songs three times. So the final mm. name was given to his boy when he was already seven. So just to give you an example of how he can change opinion uh, in philosophical matters as well. Um, but anyway, if you go past all that, uh, then I think it becomes visible that, that, well, that James also puts a lot uh, of emphasis on, not emphasis, but importance at least, uh, on the evaluative side of the experience. Um, so he acknowledges, of course, that uh, the, the, the emotion uh, is elicited within a context, uh, in a situation where we experience, uh, we perceive a stimulus that, to which we attribute a certain value and that uh, we attribute this value not only based on the stimulus itself, but uh, on the context within which we encounter the stimulus. So 10 years later, 10 years after the first paper, he writes another paper where he explains his views because he's being criticized. Um, and so what I do in the second part of the book is to take up the criticism. And so I just oppose uh, so-called feeling theories of emotion. So the mainstream interpretation of James, even though I don't think it's correct, with the criticism that has been addressed to him. And so the idea that emotions and values uh, are uh, um, either the same thing or, or really close to each other, that uh, emotions entails either the perception of value or the formulation of some kind of judgment on values and so on and so forth. Um, and that, for, that led me quite naturally to, to set up uh, a debate on on in decision making. So the way human beings make choices, and uh, well, of course, it's there's a lot of classical research there, Kahneman and Tversky, especially the psychophysics of value. So they have showed uh, shown very nicely that we're not as rational as we think we are. We we make choices based on our particular position. Uh, and our particular situation. So, so the traditional theory in economics was not really working. It was not realistic. Um, and then, of course, that's Damasio and his hypotheses. And uh, the take-home message is that there's no way, because there's no distinction between rationality and affectivity. So the distinction is something that we make. Uh, it's artificial. It's a way of producing definitions, but that's not how it really works. And because there is not a distinction of this kind, it just never happens that we make choices either only, you know, either in a cool head or, or because we've been following our heart. We always do both. And sometimes that's for the good. Sometimes it's 
for for the bad, for the ill. I don't remember how you say yes. that in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, happened, it's inevitable. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, a good example of this, and I saw research on it after it happened to me. When we first started our business, we had no money. Very common, right? Um, so my wife and I started a business together, and uh, I knew the right financial decisions to make, and I often didn't make them because I was stressed. And then they've shown research that like uh, people who are poor often make worse financial decisions than even if they change economically. They will, they will actually also start making better financial decisions after they have less stress, right? And uh, so it's this perpetuating cycle that like stress will, talking about, you know, you, you said their position determines how they, they do things, that even they will know they're not good decisions, but they're so stressed that they will, they will respond what we would consider less rationally, right? So as you were talking about like how the classical economic theory, it's like, well, everyone will just do what's best for them. And it's like, when you put people under stress, like the, it becomes more emotional. And that actually, that's just common sense. But uh, when you talk about these, these higher theories, you know, you're talking about armchair thinking, we've mentioned that before. Um, it's really, uh, well, just one of those things that <laughs> like it, uh, it's easy to miss. It's easy to be like, well, of course people do what's best for them. It's like, stop and just think about your life for a second and think about the people around you. Do they always do what's best for them? <laughs> do you always do what's best for you? Yeah. But the thing is that also determining what's best. So sometimes it's easy to see what's best for somebody. Uh, but yes. I think one of the very interesting issues here is how our own perception of values might depend on our situation and not only which is, easy to see our social situation uh, or our cultural situation, but sometimes also uh, simply our bodily states. So the same kind of stimulus, we can evaluate it very differently uh, if we have slept well, if we have had a nice dinner last night, and if nothing really bo is bothering us at the moment. Uh, or we interpret it in a very different way if we didn't get any sleep because one of the kids has been crying all night. I, I don't know if any of your kids is very small. Or because we've had to work until late, we've had too much coffee, we, I don't know, we have our period, whatever. That puts us in a bodily condition that, you know, inclines us to, for example, to, to get angry more easily than we would in a different situation. And so the same, the same stimulus for the same subject in different moments of his or her life can take up a different value. And that, of course, happens when we make choices as well. And you've, you've referenced this already. The, it's astonishing to me how universal this experience is. Like when you talk about lack of sleep makes you more irritable. I'm guarantee you every single person listening to this is like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly what that feels like, right? But on the other hand, there's so much distance too. And I, I think, you know, you're talking about the the unity or and disunity uh, debate where it's like my experience of my emotions is so hard to communicate uh, to other people, right? Uh, these are, these are, it's, uh, there's the basics that get communicated, but um, communicating it effectively and 
the you know, and I'm I'm thinking in some ways here of Derrida uh, talking about just the the different the distance in interpretation. Like you you talk about that makes me angry, and the way that like one person perceives anger in themselves and what that means for them is often very different for someone else. Yeah, no, I see your point. I think that's true, but I think that prototype theory can help there as well. Yeah. So, or family resemblance even even better. So, what is necessary? Because it, it's true that the variability is really great uh, yes. within. Yeah. Well, the best way to put it, I think, would be uh, that cultural variability is incredibly great and can take infinite ways within the boundaries set by the way our body is built. So human bodies are, are the same and have been the same for, for, for some time. So if we study any historical document, we can assume that those who are talking to us from there more or less, you know, looked like us. Uh, and so their body functioned like us. They saw in the same way, they heard the same way and so on. Um, so that's, that, that would work as a premise. Um, but, so in this context, it is true that we see variability all the time. We see differences all the time, different ways to, to talk about emotions and different way to express them, different way to act out of an emotion. Uh, and not only if you compare different cultures, but also be, among individuals of the same, that belong to the same group. Still, I think all of us would more or less agree that at least when it comes to very basic reactions, we always have an idea of what's going on. It's not that difficult yes. to see yes. whether somebody's right. And if someone can't do that, then we we assume a deficiency in their part. So like, uh, I think we've all been in situations where like someone's obviously angry and someone's obviously missing it. And we're like, what? How do you not notice they're angry? Right. Sorry, just to go along. Yeah. Yeah, that is also true of, of narratives. Uh, so there are languages that have words that we don't have. So the classical example here is the German word Schadenfreude, right? They, I don't think the English have a word like that. The Italians do not. So that's a word that names uh, the emotion you experience when somebody um, fails to do what they would like to do and you feel happy about that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we don't have a word to say that, but if a German speaker tells me the story, so gives me the structure, the script of the experience, then I can say, oh, well, that's exactly how I felt when I was a kid and my sister was punished, for example, because <laughs> my parents were wrong, right? So I have right. the experience anyway. And I understand it because you've, you've given me a story. So these stories can also be very different because as you said, and that's absolutely right, um, anger can be elicited by different conditions for different people. So what makes you angry is different from what makes me angry. And the same goes with fear and with everything else. Um, but you don't need everything to be exactly the same. So you can't... Uh, uh, you. If you're not an essentialist, you don't need to say, well, the components of an emotion are eliciting conditions to which you attribute value, uh, physiological uh, arousal, um, feelings or subjective experience and action. So these are the components, but they don't need to be there all the time in the same way for all instances right. of emotion. Um, and it's that's enough going back to, sorry, go ahead. That's no, going so back to the enough. family resemblance. 
right? Between, between the elements of the story. Those are more than enough to understand each other. And that's also true in biology. So, for example, consider the behavior that, uh, that is produced by affective states. Take fear. So fear, uh, you couldn't say that all instances of fear in a natural framework go with uh, the behavior of, of fleeing. Because sometimes you freeze, sometimes you fight, and rats do that. And they do that depending on the kind of stimulus they encounter and the way the stimulus is presented to them. So variability is there in nature already. And it's enough that there are some cluster of properties that come that occur in different scripts for us to understand the similarity and to understand that what's going on, we know what it is and we have a name for that, or, or at least we know how it feels like. Yes, and that's where that's the why you keep coming back to, and I appreciate this, the, the prototyping and just that idea of family resemblance, right? Like uh, that idea that we don't have, like we can group all these things together and talk about them in a meaningful and um, effective way without having to have these these hard and set, you know, uh, boxes for everything to fit in. Um, uh, forgive me, I have to I have to share, like you were talking about the cultural variability. Um, I saw a clip of an Indian mom uh, talking about uh, how she moved to America and she was surprised by everyone saying, I love you. And uh, she said, I've never said I love you to my kids. And like the crowd like gasped, right? They're like, how could you not say you? And she's like, I don't say I love you. That's weird. You know, and she's like, but I like, I wake up in the morning at five and I make a cup of chai for my my kids every morning i wake them up for school i pack their lunches like that's how i say i love you that's way more way more effective and you know that's that that cultural variability like to me that's like i i can't imagine right but it's that just that that's that cultural variability we we're we we're discussing yeah yeah that's right so you don't need a word first of all or you don't need to say a word uh, in order to experience the emotion you wouldn't say i love you to a kid in Italian, either. I mean, it would sound very dramatic. It would put you. It would put the. You could do it. It wouldn't sound too weird, but it's not. It's not common, and I don't think. But we have another way to say that. Uh, so to say that we love our friends and our children. When you use the word love, it's typically either it is something like you want to be really important. It's a very sacred moment. Or it's about romantic love. Uh, otherwise, we would say uh, the equivalent of I want you well. It's mm. ti voglio bene. And uh, so I care for you, right? And that's what you normally mm. say to kids. But obviously, it's the same emotion that you feel for your kids. Italian parents feel for theirs, <laughs> I'm sure. Right, right. <laughs> It's not like it's not like there's whole countries where like parents don't love their kids, right? Or don't like their kids or care for their kids. Yes. Um, and that, so I think that's really um, that's a good example of like the the variability of even the factors involved, right? The actions that follow, um, uh, and yeah, it's that's its own rabbit hole. But I do want to uh, be being uh, respectful of your time. Uh, that third section. Uh, so for me, my own background philosophy of art, as we talk about. Um, bring this up here, the uh, 
John Dewey's work. Uh, and I wonder, are you, are you referencing um, art as experience here? Uh, when it, when you talk about the debate side of it um, being the emotions towards fictional characters. Uh, I'm really curious. Oh, go ahead. No, right. So Dewey is there just because he puts a lot of emphasis on action. And so I mm. use him as a, um, well, I use him a, a lot of contemporary philosophy as well refers to Dewey uh, when it comes to talking of emotion in terms of, of behavior. Uh, so that's why he's there. But, uh, um, but no, I don't use his art as experience when I discuss the paradox of fiction. That's just a contemporary debate, relatively recent, that also entails uh, another debate uh, that on the analogy between perception and imagination or it doesn't entail it necessarily but i put the two together um yes. yeah i mean the paradox of fiction the debate on the paradox of fiction started officially in 1975 uh when this guy colin redford uh said that he thought the, so he noticed that there are similarities, important similarities to the sadness we feel when we lose somebody in real life and the sadness we feel when we, when our favorite character on the theater stage is killed. So we might even cry, you know, so the, the, the expression of the emotion is similar the, the way it feels is similar, but there are some important differences, mainly behavioral disanalogies, and, uh, but even more importantly to the mind of Redford, uh, 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 the difference is that in one case, in real life, we have a belief about the existence of what we are said about. So if a person, we've lost a real person, we, we assume it is true that that happened, that the loss is there. And if we learned that it was a false alarm, it was a false news, then we wouldn't be sad anymore. But that's not the case in the theater where we read a book, because we know from the beginning that nothing exists. And still, you know, we feel we have an emotion, uh, a strong emotional experience. So he, he says, how, how is that possible? And that's how the debate started. But in fact, it was the same issue that Socrates raises in the Ion, in Plato's Ion, with Ion. And um, so he, he asks, Ion is a rhapsode, he recites Homer, and he does it, of course he has to do it very well, because the audience will pay him if he is good, so he wants to move them. Uh, therefore, when he recites something um, sad or pitiful, he also uh, shows sadness and pity, and to an extent he probably feels it too. And so Socrates asks him, well, are you mad? Don't you know that's all non-existent? So that, that is actually the real historical beginning of the debate. And that's, again, where the historical humanities might help you to enrich the debate. But that's what the, 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 that debate in the book is about. So there is not so much due way, unfortunately. But in the next book, I will take this suggestion, this input you gave into account. Oh no worries. Uh, I was just I was just curious. I I did not get to that part. Um, the uh, yeah, and that that's uh, such a fascinating thing. Um, you know, uh, obviously, I, I started thinking of Aristotle's ideas of catharsis and like what what are the values of like purging emotions. Um, uh, you know, maybe dealing uh, not being able to handle certain emotions. 
uh, with real life things. So using fictional things, but it doesn't seem to be restricted to that. Right. Like, and so, uh, it's, it's a really, um, I, I think what you said at the beginning, how uh, you're talking about how perception and, and uh, imagination don't necessarily entail each other <laughs> and how all of that is debatable is that when I'm, when I'm walking through this issue, it seems like every single aspect is debatable. I mean, that's probably just philosophy in general, but this, you know, you talk about what is the status of fiction? What are the status of fictional emotions? Well, like I can't answer that till I even know what fiction is. Right. And, um, so it <laughs> really, it's really fascinating to me. Um, how do you, uh, what are some practical applications that you feel you can take away from, uh, these emotions we have? What are some things that you yourself have learned as you're, you're facing these, uh, emotions towards f fictional characters or how you deal with other people having emotions towards fictional characters? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I've never thought about it in these terms, if there are practical applications. I think, well, there might be in terms of, for example, um, so something that uh, is us usually thought is that uh, experiencing fiction, good fiction or good art, uh, and the affective experience that goes with it might uh, help refine your moral sensitivity. So surely there's a debate about that, which I don't touch, and I, I, I must say I don't really know much about it, but it's interesting. So that could be a practical uh, way, uh, output of a debate like this. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's just... Feeling emotions for people who do not exist is something that happens to us on a daily basis when we watch the TV. Or so I, I think that's practical enough, you know, to be yes. able to to understand <laughs> what's going on when that happens. Yeah, and it, it, I, I, one of the things I love about philosophy in general is that kind of like what's the practical side of it? It's like the the opening up of what seems ordinary into something extraordinary, like. It is strange to feel sadness for the death of someone who's not real, right? And so I think that's I think that's a great answer. Um, uh, kind of as we wrap up here, uh, what is something? Uh, what's one takeaway you would leave for our audience? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you must notice that I don't have many answers, so that's a very philosophical attitude on my part. <laughs> so even in the book. Uh, uh, yeah. My preferences, I think, are are visible, but quietly so. And I don't really, you know, I don't really give any answer. So um, the main thing is probably interdisciplinarity, transpassing, uh, looking at what people have to say in other fields, uh, having trying to build a um, full perspective as rich as possible. That I think is a necessity. Um, um, yeah, that's, that's probably the main, the main thing I would recommend, uh, as an yeah. attitude in general. Yeah. And I think that just really is a great way to tie all this up, um, that we go all the way back to that, that question about interdisciplinary, that the idea is to make, uh, 
this field as rich as possible while also understanding that it is messy and that what the goal is to build a very rich prototype, right? It's not to cut off the boundaries of emotion. And especially like when you think about something like emotion, cutting off doesn't sound like the right way to handle it anyways, right? And so to have that kind of interdisciplinary open um, field uh, in building something comprehensive, I think is, is great. Um, Dr. Campagiani, uh, wonderful to have you on today. Thank you. I felt the same. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.